Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Patrick Kiesling, and I'll be your host. Today, we are joined by Dr. Karthik Balakrishnan, a board-certified and fellowship-trained pediatric otolaryngologist. Today, we will be discussing subglottic hemangiomas. Dr. Balakrishnan, thank you so much for joining us today. Sure thing. Thanks very much for having me, Patrick. So let's get started. Today's topic is fundamental to the field of pediatric otolaryngology. Hemangiomas are a common pathology seen in the pediatric population, though today we will be focusing on the relevant head and neck manifestations of this condition. First, let's define the topic of today's discussion. What exactly is a hemangioma? When you talk about hemangiomas in children, it's important to distinguish the type. It's a collective term that includes several different conditions. In general, hemangiomas are benign tumors of vascular origin, and we can divide them into a few categories. So the first is infantile hemangiomas, and the second is congenital hemangiomas. Infantile hemangiomas are the most common benign pediatric tumor of the head and neck, uh, but they're also very common elsewhere in the body, most commonly seen on the face, the scalp, the chest, or the back, uh, and they can be multifocal in some cases, and we'll get back to that. Characteristically, these stain positive for GLUT1, which is glucose transporter isoform 1, on immunohistochemistry, and that is a very specific stain for infantile hemangioma as opposed to other types of hemangioma or other vascular anomalies. Then we can subcategorize infantile hemangiomas further into superficial, deep, and compound. So superficial is the classical bright strawberry or cherry red color that over time becomes kind of a darker burgundy color and eventually may turn gray or slightly different pigmentation from the surrounding skin. These are also known as cutaneous or strawberry or capillary hemangiomas, but those terms are all really outdated and should probably not be used. Similarly, the deep hemangiomas are, as you might expect, deeper below the skin. So they may have a bluish hue of the skin above them, or they may not have any discoloration at all. These used to be known as cavernous hemangiomas. Again, that's a not a term that should probably be used anymore. And then you can have mixed hemangiomas or compound hemangiomas that have superficial and deep components. Typically, infantile hemangiomas are not visible at birth or apparent at birth, though you may have a small overlying white patch or reddish telangiectatic vessels on the skin overlying it, or you may have nothing. They typically will manifest within a couple of weeks after birth. And the deeper types may be noticed even later because, again, they often don't have that telltale discoloration uh, or superficial mass. These are very, very common. So by one year of age, 10% of children will have these. Uh, It is more common in females. Meanwhile, congenital hemangiomas are typically present at birth. That's why they're called congenital. They're fully formed. They can be detected on prenatal ultrasound if they're big enough. They are GLUT1 negative, and they can be subcategorized as well into rapidly involuting congenital hemangioma, or RICH, which typically will involute or start to go away by 6 to 14 months, non-involuting or NICH, which do not involute over time, and then the partially involuting or PICH, P-I-C-H. Infantile hemangiomas are described as having classic stages of progression. Would you be able to walk us through those? Yeah. So the first stage is the proliferative stage. This is rapid growth or expansion out of proportion to the somatic growth of the child, typically starts within the first four weeks of life, and typically peaks sometime around age five months. And so during that phase, I should say, they have uh, endothelial cell hyperplasia. Then the hemangioma will enter what's called the quiescent phase, where things are stable. And then the involution phase, 
typically starts sometime after five months of age, usually around 12 months of age. And the rate of involution and final degree of involution is quite variable. Classically, we say 50% involute by five years and 70% involution by seven years of age, but it's really variable. And how common is it to see hemangiomas of the head and neck? Very common. So 60% of all infantile hemangiomas occur in the head and neck. Most common places we see it are in the parotid and in the oral cavity or lip. About 50% of parotid hemangiomas are associated with cutaneous hemangiomas as well. You can have them in Kieselbach's plexus or in the inferior turbinates. You get them on the ear and it can deform or distort or narrow the ear canal and actually cause conductive hearing loss. About 20% of children will have multiple hemangiomas. And uh, again, we can talk about the workup of that in a minute. Otherwise, the other place we worry about this is subglottic hemangiomas. Uh, Those are, of course, uniquely important because they can cause airway compromise. About uh, 1% of children overall with cutaneous lesions will have subglottic hemangiomas. But if you have a beard distribution cutaneous hemangioma, then about 60% will have airway involvement. And similarly, about half of patients with subglottic hemangioma will have a cutaneous hemangioma somewhere. While patients with cutaneous facial hemangiomas may have a more obvious presentation, how do subglottic hemangiomas typically present? So as with infantile hemangiomas elsewhere, they proliferate starting a few weeks after birth. But in order to become symptomatic, they have to proliferate enough and enlarge enough to cause symptoms. And so they rarely present in the first few weeks of life, usually later. 80 to 90% will have presented by six months of age. Typically, you start with some inspiratory strider that gradually worsens, can become constant, can become biphasic in some situations, often will get worse with respiratory infections or with crying. It may interfere with feeding if there's enough uh, subglottic compromise as well. And then eventually, of course, if the airway is compromised enough, you can have dyspnea, retractions, cyanosis, and so on. Unless the hemangioma involves the glottis itself, the voice and the cry are often normal. So, you know, if you have a history of a child with gradual onset worsening strider beginning a few weeks after birth, it's certainly something to think about. But of course, laryngomalacia may have the same presentation. So you have to have the clinical suspicion in your mind. And then the way to evaluate for it is you can start with a clinic flexible laryngoscopy because you can often get a decent view of the subglottis. But the definitive way is to do operative airway endoscopy under general anesthesia. And in that case, you'll typically see a sessile submucosal vascular lesion and subglottis. Sometimes it can look pinkish or reddish, but very often it does not. It can have a normal colored mucosa over it, or it can even look grayish like a subglottic cyst. Typically, we're all taught to avoid biopsy because you can have hemorrhage. That's not always the case, but it's best to be cautious about it if you are suspicious of subglottic hemangioma. You can certainly consider preoperative imaging with PA and lateral neck and chest films that may show asymmetric narrowing of the subglottis. And multi-planar imaging like CTR MRI may be useful as well, especially if there's big cutaneous hemangiomas and if you're concerned that there's any continuity with an airway hemangioma. Other things to think about are facies syndrome, which uh, significantly increases the risk of subglottic involvement or airway involvement. Other things to think about as well is if you see five or more cutaneous hemangiomas, then it's worth getting a liver ultrasound. And subsequently, if the liver ultrasound is positive, it's worth getting thyroid function tests because some of those children can actually have a severe consumptive hypothyroidism. Uh, Other things to keep on your differential diagnosis for these hemangiomas are other vascular neoplasms like tufted angioma and caposiform hemangioendothelioma or KHE. It's easy to see how there's significant variety in patient presentation and severity of this disease process. So once a diagnosis of subglottic hemangioma is made, how are these patients managed? 
Well, it really depends on what effect or complications the hemangioma was causing for the patient. So one mnemonic people use is VASCO, V-A-S-C-U, C-O, sorry. So if there's vision or hearing impairment, airway compromise, swallowing impairment, cosmetic effect or ulceration or bleeding, and then the O stands for high output cardiac failure. Subglottic hemangiomas, you know, of course, by definition, involve the airway, so you should think about intervention. But if they have minimal symptoms or the lesion's small or if it's an incidental diagnosis, you may be able to observe them until they develop symptoms. The goal, of course, is to overcome airway obstruction without causing things like subglottic stenosis. You know, surgery used to be the standard treatment, but nowadays propranolol really is the dominant and standard of care approach, best used in the proliferative stage. We don't know exactly how it works, but it seems to have some vasoconstrictive effect. It reduces the lesion volume and softens it and speeds involution. It's typically given orally, somewhere between 2 and 3 milligrams per kilo, dosed three times a day. Typically, you start slightly lower and ramp up. It's good to have uh, baseline uh, cardiology and pulmonary exams to make sure that that's okay. In infants, you want to watch out for things like hypoglycemia, bradycardia, and hypotension as well. Contraindications would include things like previous history of bradycardia or hypotension, significant heart block, heart failure, history of significant asthma, or any hypersensitive or allergy to the drug. The response rate is very, very good. It's close, you know, 97-some percent, and the response usually takes somewhere between two weeks and three months, typically would continue until the child's about a year old and then taper off. There is rebound growth in about 25% of kids, so you may have to do it again. Steroids have been used. They're used less often now. Uh, you can consider oral steroids above a year of age. Uh, intralesional injection may be an option as well, especially for subglottic lesions, but you're puffing up the lesion so you can actually worsen airway obstruction transiently. Prolonged administration of oral steroids or systemic steroids, of course, can have other systemic effects to watch out for. Uh, laser therapy is an option, as is surgical, surgical excision. All of these include risk of scarring, subglottic stenosis, etc. if you're working in the airway. If they're cutaneous hemangiomas, then you can certainly consider it. But again, propranolol really is the dominant modality. Interferon used to be used, but that's really hardly ever used at this point because of some significant neurologic side effects. And then you can consider vincristine in the case of KHE, but not really used much at all in hemangioma. Great. Well, thank you for walking us through uh, the treatment modalities for this uh, disease process. Are there any other points that uh, you want to make sure we discuss on today's topic? We had mentioned face syndrome briefly before, so it's worth going over that. Um, so face, P-H-A-C-E, or sometimes people say faces with an S, uh, stands for posterior fossa malformations, hemangiomas, arterial anomalies, cardiac anomalies, and eye anomalies. And then the S stands for sternal cleft or sternal defect. And so if you see a segmental hemangioma, in other words, one measuring over five centimeters, or if you have other suspicion for uh, cardiac anomalies in the setting of hemangiomas, it's worth working up for this. And so you would get an echo, typically a brain MRI, maybe a neck vascular ultrasound if you're worried about carotid anomalies, things like that, and then an ophthalmology consult. So that's worth considering. And then Kassebach merit phenomenon is something that people have likely heard of. It's a consumptive coagulopathy does not happen often with hemangiomas, much more common with KHE and tufted angioma. Just some considerations there. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to discuss this uh, very important topic to pediatric olaryngology with us today. Thanks, Patrick. I appreciate the time. In summary, pediatric hemangiomas can be subdivided into infantile and congenital hemangiomas. Infantile hemangiomas can occur anywhere on the body, most commonly occurring on the face, scalp, chest, or back. Characteristically, they are GLUT1 positive on pathology. 
They are divided into further subtypes of superficial, deep, and compound. They are not typically immediately apparent at birth, though may have a small white patch or red lesion overlying where they will eventually present. Congenital hemangiomas are fully formed at birth and may be detected on prenatal ultrasound. They are GLUT1 negative and are subdivided into rapidly involuting, partially involuting, and non-involuting subtypes. Infantile hemangiomas have classic stages of progression, starting with proliferative, then quiescent, then involution. Subglottic hemangiomas are diagnosed usually after the characteristic gradual worsening of inspiratory strider from intermittent to constant. The formal diagnosis is made when the lesion is visualized either in office or in the OR. Biopsy should be avoided due to risk of hemorrhage. Further imaging may be indicated in the setting of facial hemangiomas and subglottic hemangiomas coexisting to assess for continuity. Propranolol is the standard of care treatment for these lesions with a typical response rate of 97%. Steroids can be considered if greater than 12 months old, laser therapy can also be considered, or surgical intervention can also be considered if indicated. Now onto our questions. What are the classic stages of progression of infantile hemangiomas and when can we expect them to involute by? The first stage of infantile hemangioma progression is the proliferative stage, usually beginning within the first four weeks of life, demonstrating rapid growth until four to six months of age, and proliferation continuing until up to 12 months of age. This is then followed by the quiescent stage with a very stable appearance of the lesion typically, which is then followed by the involution phase. This can begin at 12 months of age with variable rates. 50% by five years old and 70% by seven years old is what is typically quoted. This usually occurs over the course of five to eight years. Next question, what is the mnemonic for management of head and neck hemangiomas depending upon complications? The mnemonic for management of head and neck hemangiomas based on their complications is VASCO. V standing for vision or hearing impairment, A standing for airway compromise or involvement, S standing for swallowing impairment, C standing for cosmetic effect or, or with ulceration, and O standing for output for high output cardiac failure. Last question. What is the first line standard of care for hemangiomas? The first line standard of care for hemangiomas in the proliferative stage is propranolol. This is typically dosed orally in the two to three milligrams per kilogram range, dosed three times per day, starting slightly lower than that and working our way up to that full dosage. Response is typically seen within two to 12 weeks and it, this dosing is continued until about one years old or more and then a tapering. Children may be at risk of rebound growth, and this occurs in up to 25% of children, and a second course may be indicated. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Head Mirror's ENT in a Nutshell.